The Hamlet Podcast, episode 24. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We have a slightly shorter episode today, just thanks to the way that the scenes of the play divide up. As things stand, Macbeth has just announced that he executed the two sleeping grooms in Duncan's chamber. I've always wanted to ask how Macduff managed to get in and see the king and then back out onto the stage to tell people, but didn't bother waking them up then. But, as with so many such loopholes in Shakespeare, if you pull at those threads enough, you'll wind up with no play left. It is Macduff who first responds to Macbeth's admission, and he asks a very sound question. He says, Wherefore did you so? Surely they're all wondering the same thing, even if we in the audience know well why Macbeth has done this. What's troubling now is that this is a shift. Whatever about the assassination of the king, which he certainly gave some thought, this is just murder, and rather rash murder at that. So Macbeth has to answer carefully to Macduff and the assembled community, to his wife, furiously recalculating their next move, and, of course, to us in the audience. And this is what he says. Who can be wise, amazed, temperate and furious, loyal and neutral in a moment? No man. The expedition, my violent love, outran the pauser reason. Here lay Duncan, his silver skin laced with his golden blood, and his gashed stabs looked like a breach in nature for ruin's wasteful entrance. There the murderers, steeped in the colours of their trade, their daggers unmannerly breached with gore. Who could refrain that had a heart to love, and in that heart courage to make love known? This is quite an extraordinary little speech. Some have written that it blurs the lines between the ways we've already heard Macbeth speaking, in his dialogue with other characters, and in his soliloquies. This makes a degree of sense, especially if you're analysing its rhetorical peaks and valleys. But there's a more interesting thing going on, I think. Here we see Macbeth performing a soliloquy to the live audience of other characters around him. He fashions himself as an actor on a stage, commanding the attention of everyone who has gathered. The one extra consideration is Lady Macbeth, but her own reaction will follow. For now, Macbeth acts almost like a messenger in a Greek tragedy, describing ghastly images that could not be presented on stage. Shakespeare's twist, of course, is that Macbeth is both messenger and protagonist in the story that he's telling us. Like a Roman orator, he begins with a leading question. Who can be wise, amazed, temperate and furious, loyal and neutral in a moment? These are all excellent examples of antithesis. How can someone stay smart when they're horrified, stay calm when they're outraged, or let their loyalty to their murdered king keep them neutral in the face of his murderers? In such a moment... This moment that has just passed, he's insisting, there was a lot going on. Who could be all of those things at once? He answers his question before his audience can. No man. We've heard him argue elsewhere that he can do only what any man can do. 
but one is therefore tempted to imagine that his wife could probably have held her nerve. But now Macbeth justifies himself. He insists that his violent love for Duncan prompted his swift action, which overtook any sense of reason that might have made him pause. The expedition of my violent love outrun the pauser reason. Now he paints a really vivid picture, like the best messengers tend to do. He says, here lay Duncan, his silver skin laced with his golden blood. Already he's painting Duncan like a martyr or a religious statue or a relic. Shakespeare really loves describing stab wounds. He honed his craft in Antony's funeral oration in his play Julius Caesar, and he outdoes himself here. He describes how Duncan's gashed stabs looked like a breach in nature for ruin's wasteful entrance. The bloody stab wounds are unnatural and a way for ruin to enter, enter the king's body, or indeed enter the kingdom. Macbeth is walking a tightrope here, attempting to justify a totally unnecessary pair of murders, but he keeps going. Having made them all imagine the ruined body of the king, he switches focus again. The actor is invited to set the scene quite physically. Here we've had Duncan, and so over there we have to have the murderers. He says, they're the murderers, steeped in the colours of their trade, their daggers unmannerly breached with gore. Yet again, we have a little bit of clothing imagery. The murderers are steeped in blood red, the colour of their trade. They're actually just steeped in blood, never mind the colour or the clothing. It's actual blood that's covering them. Likewise, their daggers, not even put away or cleaned, are rudely covered with the residue of stabbing the king. There's a grim wordplay here. The king's wounds are a breach in nature, and the daggers are breached, as if trousered, with gore from his body. It's a very small pun and the two words are spelled slightly differently, but it's nasty enough to be worth the mention. So Macbeth has established the horrific image of Duncan murdered, and the two sleeping murderers in the next room caked with his blood. Two very powerful images. And now he asks another question. Who could refrain that had a heart to love and in that heart courage to make his love known? How could anyone who loved their king and had courage enough to show that love, how could any such person refrain and not do what he did? Are any of us really convinced? Before we have a chance to think too much, Lady Macbeth intervenes, perhaps from the back of the crowd. She shouts, Help me hence, ho! It's not a particularly poetic line, but it does the job. Some later stage directions suggest that she faints, or seems to do so. It seems very clear that she's trying to distract from Macbeth's one-man show. They need confusion. Too much focused attention might lead to questions, and we can't have too much of that. Banquo is probably close to Lady M, or at least hears her cry, and shouts, Look to the lady. In the commotion that follows, as people try to help the poor hostess who's just learned that her king has been murdered in her house, Malcolm and Donalbane take a step aside. They have a private little conversation with each other. Malcolm asks, Why do we hold our tongues that most may claim this argument for ours? He's asking his brother, Shouldn't we say something? Why are we being silent when surely we're the ones who are going to be under suspicion next? 
Donalbane has a smart response. He says, What should be spoken here, where our fate, hid in an auger hole, may rush and seize us, let's away, our tears are not yet brewed. What even could they say, since they could likewise meet the same fate as these grooms? Donalbane's image is of an auger hole, that is, a hole bored by an auger. The image perhaps comes from Scott's discovery of witchcraft, which mentions that witches had the ability to go in and out of auger holes. It's a weird enough image, Shakespeare uses it in only one other play that comes after Macbeth, that it's possible he wanted this echo. Donalbane is concerned that there's badness afoot here, and that they can trust nobody. Witchcraft or murder could be hidden and lurking in something as small as a bored hole, so he and his brother would do well to stay quiet. It could otherwise rush out and seize them, and that is not the fate that they want. So he suggests that they get away. They haven't even had a chance to start grieving their father yet. Their tears are like alcohol that has not even been brewed. Malcolm responds, nor our strong sorrow upon the foot of motion. He's extending this image of their tears and their grief. Their tears are not yet brewed, and their strong sorrow, or grief, has not even taken a step towards its expression. Some studies of the play suggest that this interjection between the brothers is an afterthought, or a later addition, or indeed that there's a mistake just after it, because Banquo repeats his line, Look to the lady. Personally, I think there's room for the repetition, since what it does do is that it brings our attention away from the brothers and back to Lady Macbeth. She has now fainted, or made it look like she has. The stage directions tell us that she is carried out, and with that, we're going to end this episode. Next week, we shall reach the end of this scene, and we'll start to get a sense of what kind of outcome this shocking murder is going to have. As ever, the full text discussed in this episode, and a few notes to accompany it, are to be found on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Likewise, I'm very grateful that you've joined me, as ever, and I'll speak to you next time.